So our new series is called Made for Mission, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. On the back of your bulletins, if you flip them over, there will be a list of the scriptures we'll be looking at today, if you want to keep up with us and, and read those scriptures in your Bible or on your phone or however you read God's Word. So today we're going to start a six-week series that will help us focus on the next year. And we're going to be focusing on how God has made every single person here to fit within his kingdom as part of his sovereign plan for our area and our lives and in his kingdom. So as we get into this, I just want to take a moment and ask God's help. Father God, I'm coming to you today, Lord, admitting that I need help. Father, the idea that we are all called to minister, that we are all called to be part of the mission, is a challenging one. Most of us think of, of God's mission as, as a vocational ministry, as, as somebody who stands up here and proclaims or, or goes out and does, does other things. But Father, you have called us into mission for such a time as this. You have called us exactly where we are in our lives, through the good times, the bad things, everything. You have orchestrated it according to your sovereign plan so that we are right here this morning to hear a message to enable us and to give us the vision to plow forward in 2020 to live for you and expand your kingdom. So Lord, we just give this time to you. Speak to our heart. Change our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be looking at a biblical example this morning of a person who is probably, if you were to look at him and you would have gone to school with him, under his yearbook picture, he would have been least likely to succeed in life. He would have been the last person that you would think, if you're going to start a worldwide religion and a worldwide movement, he would not have been the person that you would have gone and chosen. He was the least likely person to be a disciple of this new movement called Christianity. This man had one of the worst jobs you could have during his time. He, his job guaranteed that he would be despised, hated, and rejected by everyone that he knew. If we were to walk you know, down Dewey Street right after church here, and you saw him walking towards you, you would actually cross the street and play Frogger in traffic trying to get away from him. He was that kind of person. I don't think, though, that he intended to end up there. I don't think he grew up thinking, hey, how can I be the most hated person in my society right now? But that's still where he ended up. Everyone had turned his ba their backs on him, and he was one of the most hated people in his area. He knew what was on each person's mind every time they saw him. He knew what was going through them. He could see it in the snarl or the scorn or the, the quick look away whenever they, they walked past him. They'd be thinking sellout. They'd be thinking this guy is contemptible. They'd be thinking this guy is a traitor to everyone in this area. People in his position were so hated they couldn't even be grouped in this category that the Pharisees would talk about, which was simply normal sinners. Instead, guys like Matthew were one step underneath the sinners, which was a tax collector. How many people here have ever had to go through an IRS audit? Anybody? Was that fun? Didn't like them very much, did you? 
No, it's it's no fun. We kind of look at tax collectors that way today, but even in Matthew's day, it was even worse. They were considered traitors to their entire nation. So one day, Matthew is sitting alone at a busy intersection, sitting at his post at a table, waiting to collect taxes on people walking by. He sees a commotion heading toward him. He sees this whole group of people surrounding a rather tall guy in the middle who seemed to be teaching and talking to them. And Matthew heard someone say the name Jesus in passing. Matthew had probably heard about Jesus at this point. Jesus' name was getting pretty, pretty famous throughout Judea. And so he was, he was interested. He goes, oh, I, I've heard about this guy. What I do know, though, is that he's a troublemaker. He's this guy from Nazareth that sounds like he's, he's trying to lead a revolution. And his Roman bosses had warned him um, about this guy. But I still, you know, G Matthew's growing up a Jewish boy. He's, he's heard the prophecies of the Messiah. So I imagine he's trying to kind of lean in and hear what this popular teacher has to say. Right in the middle of Jesus' sermon, a group of men interrupts Jesus and throws a paralyzed guy down at his feet. Now, I'll tell you what, if somebody did that in your normal church service, pastor's up there preaching, he's just bringing the word and, and just, you know, getting down in it, and then somebody comes down here and, like, throws something down and says, hey, pastor, can you do something about this? Most pastors would be probably a little put off by that. I mean, we shouldn't be, but, you know, we, we kind of get in a roll, and when somebody stops that, it messes with us a little bit. But it didn't really mess with Jesus because it was a very human need. It was, a, it was a need that needed to be met right there and right at that time. So instead of being annoyed, Jesus immediately looked at the man and said, Your sins are forgiven. Then Jesus turned back to the man and said, Just to show you that I can forgive sins, get up and walk. And at once the man jumped up and the crowd just stood in amazement. Now, Matthew had never, ever probably seen anything like this before. If he ever even went to synagogue, he would have probably had to stand on the outside because he would have been considered a traitor to his people. So his church life would have been out there in the foyer, and that's about as far as he would have gotten if he was a member of this church because we wouldn't have allowed him in here within his culture and within the way that they did things back then. So Matthew looked up again, and now... This guy who just told this guy to stand up is walking toward him, looking right at him. And I can't even imagine what's going through his mind right now. I was wondering if he like immediately probably stood or wanted to stand up and run away. But somewhere deep in his soul, he knew that there was something about to happen in his life. Because Jesus stopped at his table. And I can just imagine him just kind of leaning in and whispering just loud enough for Matthew to hear, follow me. That's all it took. You know, at this moment, the only thing Matthew knows about Jesus is that he's a troublemaker. But he has just witnessed Jesus perform an incredible miracle. He doesn't know what Jesus' plans are. He doesn't know what his purposes are. He has no idea what this call, follow me, means. But yet he stands up and leaves his life of tax collecting behind. Somewhere in the deep part of his soul, he knew that he just made the most important decision of his life. My friends, 
Jesus is always whispering in our lives, follow me. It's not going to be a shout all the time. It's not going to be the great thundering voice from heaven. Most oftentimes when God speaks to us, he speaks in that whisper. He speaks in that still, small voice. And one of the things he is always telling us is follow me. Everyone today is searching for and seeking a purpose in their lives that something is bigger. You know, I just turned 50, and so I guess I, I'm not quite a baby boomer. I'm kind of in that, in that in-between. My daughter always calls me boomer when I talk, when I talk about uh, truth and all that. But this is exactly what's driving so many of the young people today. They want their lives to matter. And they want their lives to be bit about something bigger than themselves. That's why they, they run so fast into all these um, different uh, movements and all those things. Even though they're destructive, they run into it because they always want to be part of something. And that's why we have to hold the doors of the church open wide and say there's already somebody that is calling you to do something bigger than yourself. There's already somebody who wants to pour himself into you and let you live a life that matters. You know, Stanford University did a study recently to find out if people truly desired happiness or meaningfulness. They found there's a connection between the two, but ultimately what people really want is a life of meaning. It speaks deeply to a, a felt human need that within each one of us, and it was placed there, I believe, by God. And this idea is we're made for a mission. This idea is your life has purpose. No matter how you came into this world, even if you were a quote-unquote oops baby, you were not an oops in the eyes of God. God had you planned out from the time he said, let there be light. Over the next six weeks, we're going to spend some time figuring that out for your life. Hopefully you're in Matthew chapter 9 now. And we're going to start in verse 9. We're going to read about Jesus' calling on Matthew's life. And I believe it's going to have incredible significance for our lives today. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. You know, I read about Matthew, and I thank God that Jesus called him. Because what Matthew teaches us is that God can use anyone. He can use the world's biggest reject and the person that made the most mistakes in their life. He can still use that person. We said it before. Tax collectors were seen in that culture as the worst of the worst. They were hated absolutely hated because in order to become a tax collector you essentially had to sell out your own people and in a day where 90 percent of the people lived under what we would call the poverty line today tax collectors were wealthy because generally they were able to keep a percentage of the tax they collected so guess what they said if they were supposed to collect 10 percent eh, maybe we'll get 15 today 
just to kind of pad their own pockets. So they were absolutely hated, and not only hated because they would extort money out of people, but hated because they were doing it for the very government that was keeping them under their thumb or keeping the heel of their boot on their neck. They were the conquering people. I mean, think about another country coming in and conquering us. We're having to live under their laws, their rules, which are totally antithetical to anything that we believe in. And on top of that, they're taking all of our money. Now, if one of us were to go and start serving them, how would we be viewed? That's where Matthew is in this situation. He would be the last person you would think Jesus would want to select to be one of his inner circle. But this is why it's so incredibly significant for us. If God can call one of the most hated and reviled people of his time to follow him, he can call you too. J.D. Greer, he's the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote a book called Gain by Losing. He writes, there's a widespread myth in the church that calling into ministry is a secondary experience that happens to only a few Christians. Those people's job is to do the work of the ministry and everyone else just shows up on Sunday and foots the bill. And this is one of the most significant things he wrote. He said, few lies cripple the mission and witness of the church more than that one. Each believer, that means you, that means me, that means everyone. Each believer is called to leverage his or her life for the spread of the gospel. The question is no longer whether we are called. The question is where and how are we called? You're called by God. It doesn't matter where you sit in this society. It doesn't matter what people think of you outside of these walls. God wants to use you in his mission and in his kingdom. And since you are called, since we see this plainly written in his word, you have to start asking yourself some big questions. I want you to look where you are right now in life. Look at the jobs you have done. Look at the obstacles you have had to overcome. That means the grief. That means the trials. That means the good, and you know what? It even means the bad. Everything you have gone through has gone into making the you that is sitting here this morning. And it doesn't matter what you do for a living. You could be a cleaner, you could be a farmer, you could work at a gas station, retail, factory, medical, protective services, whatever it is, the same question applies. Military, fire department, teacher, student, God has put you on the front lines for such a time as this to complete the mission he has called you to do. Now what would happen on Monday morning when the electronic rooster goes off? And you wake up and you're like, oh, God, snooze, snooze, snooze. What would happen if we stopped doing that and started viewing that thing we call job as mission? What would happen if you considered your job a calling from God? Tomorrow morning, most of us are going to have that routine. We're going to wake up, hopefully take a shower, get dressed, Maybe you have kids to get ready for school or, or you know, kiss your spouse goodbye and you're going to go to work. 
work 8, 10, 12, 24 hours, then come home, prepare supper, do some leisurely activity right before bed, start over again, do the same thing the next day. It sounds like a typical American life, doesn't it? Or you could be and focus on the fact that each day is another mission for God. Maybe instead of hitting that snooze alarm, we could say, God, what would you have me do today? God, how could I be used to show the love of Jesus to the people around me? Even that nasty co-worker that spreads rumors about me. Even my boss who's always yelling and cussing at me. Even all those people who won't sit by me in the lunchroom because I'm one of those Bible thumpers. Whoever it may be, how can I show the love of Christ to them today? How could I introduce them to the Savior who loves them? J.D. Greer again says, you don't need a voice when you have a verse. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God wants to work through us and share his love with others. You know, too many of us, and I, I, I can be just as guilty about this, but too many of us are waiting for the clouds to part and to God to speak in a thunderous voice when he's already given us everything we need to know right here. Amen. In the Bible, it's, it's a kind of a colloquialism within the church, but it, the Bible is an acronym. It stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Everything you need to know is right here. So you need to spend time in this and spend time with God, praying, saying, God, how can I be used for this mission? I mean, look at Jesus' invitation to Matthew. This is critically important for us to consider when we consider Jesus' call to each one of us. Jesus doesn't say, okay, uh, get in line, you can stand behind James, and then I'll get to you eventually. He doesn't tell him necessarily or follow a 12-step pro, program to, to be able to be worthy to be used by me. He doesn't tell him to, okay, I, I need you to go off to four years of, of Bible college or then two or three years of seminary, and then maybe I can use you. No. And this is one of the main points, is that he is not telling him to do anything. He is coming and telling him to come to him and be part of a relationship. Jesus invites Matthew first and foremost into a relationship with him. The relationship is not a byproduct of them doing ministry together. The relationship is the assignment. The relationship is the point. The ministry is is what would come from them spending time together. The Christian life is not supposed to be about doing things for God. It's supposed to be about being with Jesus. And from Matthew's point of view, he's obviously shocked that Jesus would, would look at him like that or approach him or, or ask him to be part of this worldwide mission. Think about what Matthew is giving up here. He has one of the best paying jobs around. It's easy money. I mean, all he's doing is sitting on the side of the road saying, hey, hey, throw some money in the kitty here. That's all he has to do. It's minor accounting work. Easiest job in an, in an agrarian culture where most of the time, most of the people are working by the sweat of their brow. And I'm talking 12, 16 hours a day. They are working themselves to death to squeak by enough food for one day. And then they have to start over again. All he's doing is sitting there collecting money. So he has an incredibly easy job. 
On top of that, Jesus' invitation, it's a big bit vague, isn't it? He's not saying, okay, follow me. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. It was simply, come. Spend time with me. Come into relationship with me. And then we'll work out those things later. I think what drew Matthew in wasn't so much the teaching. I don't think he was, I'm sure he was impressed by a lame man walking. I'm sure that, that, that shook him. But I think what really struck Matthew was the phrase, your sins are forgiven. I think that touched him at the innermost part of his spirit. I think that's, that spoke directly to what he needed to hear. That all the slander, all the jeers, all the ignoring of his society, when Jesus said, I can take all that away from you, I think that's what led him to stand up immediately and be able to follow the Savior that called him. And it shows when we follow Jesus on his mission, God will transform how we see everything and even how we use our resources. It's inferred that Matthew asked a question at some point because Matthew chapter 9, verse 10 says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So I think the next question Jesus had to ask is, well, Jesus, you want me to, to come and follow you? I'm doing that. Where are we going? What, what do you want me to do? He goes, well, Matthew, we're going to go to your house. What am I going to do there? I'm going to use your skills as a barbecue chef, and we're going to have a meal. Now, what's remarkable about this meal is that Matthew's probably had some people over to his house before, particularly his Roman bosses and fellow tax collectors. But now, instead of Matthew the tax collector, now it's Matthew the missionary. His ability to barbecue is now being used as a mission from God. And when I go from sitting to following God, it's going to internally start changing the way I start seeing other things in my life. You know, God has blessed all of us with stuff that can be used on mission. And Matthew immediately, when he started following Jesus, used his house and his food to be on mission. And the same can be true for any one of us. When we finally get... Um, God's mission is first and foremost in our lives. It changes everything. It changes how we look at our finances, our possessions, our talents. Anything else we think we have going for it gets laid on the altar. And it will transform how we even see our relationships with the people around us. You know, Matthew would have had many meals before with his tax collector friends. But this time, they had tax collectors and the religious leaders join them. It's kind of hard to put into modern words the awkwardness this had to produce. This would be kind of like the NFC Championship game is being played and the Packers and the Vikings are playing, if that could happen. 
And on this side of the church, we're going to have the Vikings fans. On this side of the church, we're going to have the Packers fans. We're going to share a meal right in the middle and watch the playoff game. There's probably going to be a little bit of friction there, isn't there? Multiply that times 10, because now you're talking religion. Now you're talking about traitor, people who are viewed as traitors looking at the people who think they're, they're the cool kids or the Hollywood stars in their culture, and these two are meeting over a table and over food. What do you think Matthew hoped that would happen? Because he's risking alienating everyone he knows by bringing these two groups together. But you know what? Matthew put all that fear aside. Matthew put all of that concern on the altar. And he said, you know what? What I have witnessed and experienced in my own life, these people need too. And even if it makes me an enemy, even more enemies, I'm going to risk it to see these people come into the same relationship with Jesus that I currently have. He was going to lay it all down. You see, when you join God on a life of mission, you begin to realize that none of your friendships or even your acquaintances are coincidental. Can I say even those people you would consider your enemies, those people who always call the cops because your bark dog barks too much, or those people who always glare at you every time they pull into their, their driveway, God has placed every single one of these people into your life for such a time as this. God's placed them there, and he desperately wants what happened to you to be able to happen to them. At some point, all of us had somebody tell us about God. Maybe it was a loved one. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was some elderly man knocking on a door here in Whitehall and handing over a track and telling you that Jesus loves you and, he's his best, and Jesus is his best friend. Are you going to invest your time and resources into simply those people who can pay you back somehow? Or are you going to move your eyes on a reward not found in this world? We're all made for a mission that is bigger than just calling ourselves Christian. We're made to be kingdom-minded people and looking to see God's word and love spread all around us through our witness in this community. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, it says, When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, we already established it's crazy to think that the Pharisees even came. And I bet they're thinking, why are we even here where we can become ritually unclean and not be able to go to temple because we are sitting in this guy's house right now. But what they got to witness is a third way that God begins to transform us when we move from sitting in a pew to actually following him is that God will transform how you and I respond to people ridiculing us. The tax collectors knew they're at the bottom of the totem pole. But that didn't change the fact that they wanted to be in good standing with the Pharisees. The Pharisees controlled all aspects of Jewish life. If you weren't in good with them, you were nobody. But one afternoon of following Jesus and all that changes in Matthew's life. 
Now they didn't care about the approval of the Pharisees because they're too busy with their new friendship with Jesus. And that's a critically important point for us to understand and to live out. Is that you are not made to fit in. You're not going to fit in. The very fact that you follow Christ makes you a, a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. When you're on mission, you're not living for the approval of man. You're living for the approval of God. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, he says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or if I'm trying to please people, or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. One of my favorite leadership uh, sayings is that a good leader never asks a person to do something that they are unwilling to do or haven't done in the past. Saying that, Jesus himself faced all kinds of ridicule, all kinds of persecution, all kinds of accusations. So you wouldn't expect that if you're following him, that, that you're not going to get that as well. Jesus has said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And for Matthew... And maybe some of his tax collector friends, they had, when they had no interest in Jesus, that might have stung a little bit. Imagine if one of his friends stayed after their party to share what he wa that he wanted what Matthew had. How awesome would that be? How awesome would it be that Matthew was willing to lay down everything just to get one person? Check out how that passage ends. In Matthew, back to Matthew chapter 9. On hearing this, Jesus said it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You know, too often we look at the, the successful person. Too often we look at our neighbor who, who takes care of their yard or, or is one of those quote-unquote good people in town. We say, yeah, that they need Jesus. And we, we spend hours and, and days and all kinds of ways trying to win that really put-together person. While in the meantime, there may be people, ten people that are on the lower end of our society that also needed to hear Jesus that continue to suffer. But because we're so focused on wanting to be liked by that person over there, we miss those people who really need to hear about Jesus and who would respond to that message. That's Jesus' mission. He's a spiritual doctor rescuing physically and spiritually wounded and sick people. That means he came for you and he came for me. The takeaway for that is this. You have no idea the impact God might want to make through your life. But I also know that there's no greater journey or no greater joy than the journey of figuring all that out. Because of the events in the last couple days, I, I looked backwards a lot within my life as I considered Pastor Rogers. I also know that hindsight's always 2020. And I began to, to think about the things Roger went through and the things that I went through. And I was thinking about all the pain and the suffering and the grief that I've been through in my life, particularly my childhood, God used it 
to shape the person that he needs to fit into the role that he had for me. I look back on my life and I realize that much of what I went through as a kid prepared me to be standing alone. To stand alone for truth. That I don't really need the approval of others. Well, I kind of need the approval of Tammy, but don't tell her that. As I was thinking about that, I thought about Pastor Roger's life. And I thought about what he was willing to do to fulfill God's mission for his life. Pastor Roger had a lot of things going for him. He held a degree from one of the most prestigious universities in our fellowship, North Central. Yet for many years, he bagged groceries while serving in the ministry. A college degree, and he's doing a job a teenager does when they first get out of high school, or maybe still in high school. I think it taught him humility, and how God could love even the least of these, and it made him so tender-hearted that he could show the love of God to those whose society had tossed aside. But the thing I remember the most about Pastor Roger was a deep, personal relationship with Jesus. He saw himself as a Matthew, somebody that Jesus was simply said, follow me. And Roger did that. If you ever asked him about who Jesus was, Roger's answer was, he's my best friend. He heard the call, follow me. And he did that his entire life. I'm not building Roger up on a block or putting him up on a pedestal. I'm simply using his life to illustrate. He went through the same kind of thing Matthew did. He answered the call, follow me. But God has that same kind of mission for you today. To come into a relationship with him on a deeper level and through that relationship to follow Jesus wherever he might lead.